Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Oh, Jim. Hey, everybody, this is Jimmy Crane, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd. Sponsored by my award-winning improv classes here in Chicago, the Artist Low Comedy, where we teach you, before you can be funny, you need to be real. And guess what? You're going to be even funnier. Now, I limit my class sizes, so you're always going to get plenty of stage time and personal attention. For more information about my award-winning classes, the Artist Low Comedy, go to my website at jimmycarane.com. That's jimmycarane.com. We're also sponsored by the good people here in Chicago, at the Hotel Lincoln. So the next time you find yourself here in the city and you're looking for a cool boutique hotel that's close to everything, it's right around the corner from Second City, it's not only improviser-friendly, it's pet-friendly as well, check out the official hotel of improv, nerd, Hotel Lincoln. You are going to love, love, love today's episode, especially if you are improvising in a smaller market or... You're running an improv theater because our guest today runs the Kansas City Improv Company at the Kick Theater in Kansas City, and he also heads up the Kansas City Improv Festival. I'm talking about Tim Marks, and you are going to love Tim because Tim is an improviser. He's a teacher. He's a producer, and he runs an improv theater. Tim is very candid in this interview as he tells us, what it's like to run an improv theater and what kind of personality issues you have to deal with. He also has a very specific approach to improvisation and he shares that with us. And also, you're going to love this because after the improv part, I've never experienced this, but we get into a very heated discussion with the audience about politically incorrect characters. You are going to love this episode. We recorded this episode in Oklahoma City at the Improv Festival Oklahoma, and I want to thank James Murray for bringing us down there. Before we get to the interview, I just I want to point something out that happened at the end of this episode, and, and I alluded to it in, in, in the intro. Uh, Tim Marks and I did a scene, and Tim is a, is a very good improviser, and he came out and he made a very strong choice and he did a politically incorrect character or what could be conceived as a politically incorrect character. That, I believe, is very subjective. And when we went to the questions and answers portion of the show, the conversation got very heated. There was a couple people who were really triggered by what he had done. And Tim uh, did a great job of explaining himself. He has a, a legal background, so I'm sure he... he took care of himself. But as, a, as the host, I, I felt like I, I felt conflicted. I mean, do I jump in? Do I, do I give my opinion? I felt as a total codependent and somebody who wants to take care of people and take responsibility for stuff that's not even mine, I wanted to save him. Uh, I felt that at some point he was, was being attacked. Um, and you're going to have to make that decision as you listen to this. Um, so I felt... Um, it's going to surprise you, but I felt shame after the interview, like I, I didn't do my job. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was very tough, but here's the thing that I've learned from this, and um, I, I really believe this. Um, if I'm uncomfortable, or if my guest gets uncomfortable, or people in the audience get uncomfortable, that usually ends up making the most compelling broadcast. It usually makes the most... It just makes good radio, as we used to say, or it makes good podcasting. So 
is a, is uncomfortable it is during during when it's going on it usually is the thing that becomes the most memorable uh, for you guys the listeners so here it is i know you're going to enjoy this he's just so he's such a just so thoughtful about improvisation here it is the tim marks episode jimmy's a nerd he's a nerd oh yeah jimmy's a nerd Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. Um, you grew up in Kansas, in, a, 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 in the middle of Kansas. Is yes. that right? And you were a very shy kid. I was shy, yeah. How shy were you? I was... Uh, my, my dad had a good friend, and he had a daughter about my age, and she was also shy, and they joked that if she and I ever had kids, they would never learn to speak <laughs> because I just didn't speak up. I think especially around adults. So. What was it about adults? Were you just intimidated, scared by them? I don't think so. I think I was just naturally shy. I didn't feel the need to express myself or talk very much. Um, you were saving it up till later in life when you Yeah, apparently to so. Yeah, I'm kind of a latent extrovert, I guess. You also talked about um, you would sneak in at night and watch a, a show. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, I was thinking about my early comedy influences because you were asking about it. And I remember when I was... Um, I don't know, eight or nine years old, and um, my bedtime was 10.30, which was right when, uh, or 10 o'clock maybe, right when Johnny Carson started. And I wanted to watch Johnny Carson. Um, And so my mom would sit in her recliner after sending me to bed, and I would come out and sit behind the recliner (laughs) off to the side and watch the monologue and try not to to laugh out loud and get caught. Um, And eventually my mom wound up, or my parents, wound up saying, well, you can watch the monologue, and then you have to go to bed. So did they so, catch you? I think so. Um, probably. I was, yeah. I wasn't that careful. But, <laughs> but you also bonded with your dad over a comedian. Yeah, I also remember uh, specifically uh, sitting and watching, I think, HBO comedy special with Stephen Wright, um, who was amazing and still is amazing. For and people who don't know his work, give, give me a sample of what he's uh, Stephen Wright is very deadpan, and, and I don't like to steal people's jokes, but I'm. But if you, this is if his you, joke. Right, and if you say you're stealing their joke right, right out front, it's, it's, yeah. yeah. This is an homage, Stephen. Right. Yeah. Um, the one that comes to mind is uh, I put instant coffee in a microwave. I almost went back in time. Just strange, bizarre. Um, oh, uh, the other day I was walking down the street. Wait, that wasn't me. <laughs> and move on to the next joke, non sequitur, no, no connections, um, and just so smart and weird and unique. And he'd do an hour special. And I m- remember my dad and I both crying, laughing over, over Stephen Wright. And so then you become a lawyer. You go to Duke in North Carolina. Yeah. You're a very overachieving kid, right? Yeah, I was good at I was good at getting good grades. I was a and smart what, kid. what what drove you to get good grades? Because I was a, most improvisers don't get good grades, as you know. What yeah. drove you to do that? I think it just kind of came easily, and then you get rewarded and patted on the back for whatever you do well. So whatever you do well and whatever you're congratulated on, you you want to you put an emphasis on that. You focus on that, and so for me that was getting A's. And you're still a shy kid at this point? Or are you coming out a little out of your shell? Coming out of my shell, like, age 17, 18, And, and what is, for Tim, coming out of his shell at 17 or 18? I was more social. I finally asked that girl out when I was 16. And 
Um, she was two years older than me. Okay. And she was shocked that I asked her out. She probably thought of me as this little kid, little brother, but I just, I had to, to do it. And she, I saw her shock and she said, okay. And then the next day she called me and she was like, I, I shouldn't have said yes. That's <laughs> How? So back into the shyness for a while. Um, uh, so, but I was, I was social, I had friends, I was doing activities, um, and I realized that, you know, when I interact with people, they generally like me, I can make people laugh, um, and so I was figuring that out at that time. And then you, you become this lawyer, and you do, um, you do like uh, sexual discrimination kind of law, right? Yeah, I was, uh, my specialty was employment law, so harassment, discrimination, ADA, FMLA, all those things that can happen at a workplace and get an employer fired or an employer sued for the way they treat their employees, basically. And and it's kind. Of, what I find it interesting is if you are around, at least in Chicago, backstage with improvisers. I mean, there could be a lot of lawsuits, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, the way we talk. Um, maybe, but you're probably not an employee of the theater or the improv troupe, so and we have specific agreements with our actors that they sign that. They're independent contractors, and so, no. Well, that's good to know. Thank I you, mean, Tim, because I was worried about that. This does not constitute legal advice. Please uh. talk to your own lawyer. Um, uh, but I mean, in general, weird? you can get sued for anything at any time. Right. But whether it could be a successful lawsuit is... But, but is, it, is, it, is it kind of um, weird for you because you were in that world, and then you go in the improv world where, like, kind of anything goes, and those different cultures making that adjustment? A little bit, but I find for the vast majority of interactions, improvisers are sensitive to other people, and they very rarely will make lots of jokes about sex or um, race, usually in an ironic way, to make fun of people who are bigoted and stupid. Right. And, and I've rarely seen things that were that were hurting other people's feelings and offending people in the in the improv and actor. But if you made those jokes in the corporate world that would be a problem, right? Probably. Okay. Uh, but in every workplace, there are probably people in the kitchen back here right now making comments that are inappropriate. Right. But if they are not unwelcome, if they're making each other laugh and everyone's comfortable with it, then it's not a problem. It's... Later it can become a problem because, <laughs> because when you're sitting in a courtroom or in a deposition, now this is like a seminar. And what is, it, what is but, making you like, uncomfortable you, about this? Um, that I'm delving into the intricacies of employment law. Okay. Well, that's why people Which is, actually. That's, that's why people listen to improv nerd. This is not improv nerd. This is just nerd nerd. Right. At this point, this is legal nerd. I, legal nerd. Legal, legal nerd. Is and that we'll, we'll talk about the new tax laws on our next episode. <laughs> by the way. Um, so how do, how does this lawyer get into improv? Um, I had seen a couple of improv shows and I was interested and I um, was impressed and I wanted to know what the trick was. I felt like there's some trick or else they couldn't make that look so easy. Um, I saw a great show in Chicago by a group. I have no idea who they were now. But it wasn't at a theater, right? It was... No, it was in, um, they like rented out maybe a hotel bar or something like that and did a show. And so it was not Second City. It was not I.O. Annoyance. Was it long form or short form? It was short form. Okay. So... But, the, but very, very talented performers um, not relying on the wacky, zany, silly, which I don't care for that much. Um, and... Uh, I gave a speech at a uh, law firm that I worked for, and I was surprised that I wasn't very good at it. I 
kind of stumbled. I was nervous in front of the crowd, and I thought I need to get better. And I wanted to t to take improv as one way to get better at, at public speaking. Um, and soon after that, I believe a friend of mine said, "Hey, there's a new improv group having auditions or forming. You should come down." And uh, I was busy. I couldn't make it. A couple months roll by. He loves it, and I come and. Um, they say, well, just come to a, um, you missed the auditions, just come to a workshop uh, that we have, a, a rehearsal. And this was in Kansas City? Yeah, in uh, Johnson County, just uh, suburbs of Kansas City. And I showed up and kind of watched what they were doing, and halfway through they kind of got me on my feet and said, why don't you try something? And I said, okay. And then at the end of that they, they said, well, why don't you just keep coming back? And so it wasn't even really an audition process, it was just a brand new fledgling little group, um, and they needed warm bodies and so so you're so you've never done improv before and now you're yeah. do you're, you're doing it's, it's you're doing short form right yeah and you're doing you're rehearsing a lot and then you're doing like a show a month right at first it was like a show every six months a show every four months a show every three months um, and it was very irregular we were we should have done more shows I think we were relying on friends and family and we do a show and say oh that was fun I wonder when these people will come back to see us again. Uh, maybe November? Um, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of like, oh, I don't think we should do a show in November. Let's wait a couple months, right? Yeah, and, and there was, um, <laughs> yeah. Or we were a, a small group where someone would say, oh, November's bad for me. And we'd say, okay, well, let's look at January. And really, it was, it was all run by the person who started the group who had a um, comedy sports training, so it was all short form, family friendly, and he was just teaching us how to play the games. Um, and I wasn't learning how to improvise as much as I was learning how to do these games and be competent enough to put me on stage uh, with other performers. And then d during one of the rehearsals, they asked you to do a scene, and you're like... Oh yeah, they said, let's just do a, do a scene. Just you two, go do a scene. And I just, I stopped. I was like, I said, what game are we playing? What do you, what do you mean? What? do a scene? Okay, no. Yeah, I'll just give you a suggestion, do a scene. And I didn't know that was a possibility. And so that was maybe, uh, I started in, in 2000, 2001, so that was probably 2002 or 2003, and I still didn't know how to do a scene from scratch. And then in like 2005, you go to the Dallas Comedy Improv Festival and you see The Reckoning. The Reckoning, yeah, in, in and Dallas. And for people that and, don't know The Reckoning, I mean, it, 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 I, I believe it's uh, this amazing team out of Chicago, I.O. Chicago. It's got uh, Brad Morris, Holly Loren, Jed Evelett, Eric Cunningham, uh, Michael Patrick O'Brien, who's on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I'm, for, I'm, I'm forgetting some, but there's a lot. It's a great, great team, and they've been together for, for years. Right, and not only was it uh, a, a long form, it's a long form with a big cast, and they do a lot of organic things. I remember, like, nine people on stage all portraying like a big piece of bubble gum that's being chewed or something all at once and so it was so far removed from what we had done and it was so amazing and great that it changed how how, we how, how did it change when you went back to Kansas City um, well to take a step back in 2004 the leader of the group told us well I don't I can't do this anymore because of my job situation and I'll let you guys continue it if you want to and he turned around and walked out of the rehearsal and so there were five of us sitting there like oh and we literally turned to each other and said do I want to continue doing this do we know how to do a show without him 
can we do a show with only five people? I don't know if that's ever been done before. <laughs> it, has, it has to be three people against three other people. There's no other way to do improv. Because you were doing like comedy sports kind of competition thing. Yeah, it was comedy sports, except we called it a game show instead of a sporting event. Okay. Because there was still a comedy sports right. venue in Kansas City. I'll give you some legal advice. You were not in any sort of infringement. I didn't you're... own it at that point, so right. that's yeah. their problem. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so you decide to carry on. So we carry on, myself and uh, another uh, person, Aaron Carlson, in the group, who now lives in D.C. He was a theater major, and I was a lawyer, so I felt like I could be organized enough to, to put shows on. Um, we, we kept the troupe going, and we had some auditions, and grew from there. So you, you keep going, and you start to evolve, as doing more long form. You, you see the uh, Reckoning, you see them do a Herald, you're blown away by it. Um, how, so how does, how does stuff change now when you come back and you bring that stuff from the Reckoning? Um, we knew that we needed to go to more festivals, and so we went to festivals and, and sought out training um, from people. Uh, the rest of the improv community in Kansas City, we connected with, with them, um, the kind of older guard, and um, they had connections from the Kansas City Improv Festival and brought in Dan Izzo, for example, from Michigan. So whenever someone was in from out of town, we'd go and we'd grab them and make them teach us classes and courses. With a gun? You'd hold a gun to their head? We would and kidnap them? And no. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so, uh, you, you'd get, so you, were, you were getting outside help. Right. How important is that when you're in a smaller market? To, because the disadvantage you guys have is you're not seeing long form. You, you don't have the communities like Chicago, New York, LA, Austin, stuff like that. How important yeah. is that to, to, to evolve doing long form? Yeah, at that time there was not long form going on. Now, now there's quite a bit in Kansas City. So now people can learn and get a pretty good education in Kansas City. Um, and I think there are other cities like that and there are also small markets that don't have that resource mm -hmm. even today. Um, but to get, you just need excellent training um, and access to those minds who know how to teach and who, who understand what it takes to get better at these things. Who did you work with that really influenced your work? Um, many people, um, Joe Bill, Susan Messing, uh, Jill Bernard, Mark Sutton, um, T.J. Jagodowski, those are probably the biggest influences on me, on us. We had most of those people to our festival multiple times, and um, many of us took their classes multiple times. I worked with Jesse Parent when we went to the Chicago Improv Festival for the first time. Uh, he coached us. Um, and then a lot of other people that we've taken one or two classes from. We've also now, in the last two or three years, been doing Skype coaching with people around the country, Nick Armstrong, uh, Rick Andrews, um, Craig Kukowski, uh, a few others. Um, and so our younger improvisers are getting instruction from those high-level people while they're in Kansas City. Then, uh, now you were running theater after a couple years, is that right? We're running the improv company and we started doing monthly shows. Um, and then, so we didn't open our theater until 2012. Okay. So we, we grew pretty slowly and steadily. Um, and, and what is that like to be 
you know, you're casting people f for the company, you're teaching them, and then you're also performing them with them at night. How do you how do you you, you switch roles? Um, it's not it's not real easy, and it, it, I think it's gotten easier. Um, but at first, it's hard to to bring someone in and say um, give them a lot of uh, notes, and then say, okay, let's go do a show, and we'll, we're equals on stage, um, because that's, human nature is hard to it's hard to make that switch. Um, I, I think we've gotten better at it now. Um, and you know the people that we hire now or that we cast, uh, we have an audition every six months or so, and we had about 40 people audition last time around, and we took five of them. And so we can be very picky, and we're getting people who have very good training and very good talent. And a lot of them now are, have quite a bit of acting experience around town, and so they know how to be pros. They know how to take a note, and that it's, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It's a chance to use this note for what it's worth. Some of the notes might be not valid, but ignore those, take the ones that, that are helpful, and then do the job. And the job, once you're on stage, is to do the best show that we can do as a group, as an ensemble. And it doesn't matter who has more lines or who defers to whom. Um, it's not easy running a company, you know, uh, an improv company and stuff like that. We talked a little about, a year ago, you had a little, there was a little drama in, in the company. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you want to? Tell us a little about that. Sure. Let's talk about the painful times. <laughs> I like listening to your podcast because you, when someone says, oh, yeah, I felt like a failure, you sometimes get excited. I You're do like, get excited. Like, oh, my gosh, that must have been terrible. I, Tell me about that. I do. I, I love it. I love it. It's love so it. funny. You, it, yes, I love it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I love it because the people that listen to this podcast, the people that I have on as guests, like you and you know all the people that I've had on, They've reached some sort of success, and 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 I know I probably said this a million times on this podcast before. So if you're listening, just bear with me. Fast forward. Th that yes, fast forward. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it'll be another 20 seconds, and you go back to the interview. But the whole point of like, it's not easy, you, you know. And I wish when I started out, people would say like, okay, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have a lot of failure. You're going to have a lot of disappointment. Just hang in there. It's going to make you stronger. And that's why I think what you were going to, you were about to say, uh, share with us is, is really is really important to anybody who's in a group or a theater because, like I told you, I get a lot of people saying, "I got a problem. What do I do with this?" You know, because yeah. we're in a people business. Yeah, absolutely. And to get, you know, we have 22 people in our company, and to get 22 artists of any type in a room to work well together and not have a lot of drama or screaming or fights or jealousy is really not easy. Um, I think the, in the improv community, it's a lot easier than any other artistic community that I've heard of. Um, but nonetheless, um, I think this problem stemmed from the fact that it's really hard for improvisers to quit something, to quit a group, and it's hard for a group, on the other hand, to fire anyone. Um, Why do you think that is? I think because it's part of the culture that there are no mistakes. Whatever you do, I'm going to support you. We're in this together. Um, you know, say yes to everyone's ideas and support and make this work. So it's it's kind of antithetical to say we shouldn't be working together anymore. You know, that's a denial. Work on that. Start over. Don't say no. <laughs> we're going to keep working together. Um, so uh, there was a situation where there were a couple people in our group who had kind of we kind of grown apart in some ways, and maybe they should have um, departed 
earlier. And so there was, so then every little annoyance that either going either way toward them or, or back to me became bigger and bigger until I was, I, I was a little curt in an email and um, used a profane word when I should have just said, use that same sentence without that. Mm -hmm. And I regret that. And that blew up into an email chain back and forth with lots of witnesses in the CC line that was just ugly and unnecessary. Um, and I lost, um, a, uh, you know, I'm, I was not innocent in the, in the matter, um, but I lost a lot of sleep over, how, over these hard feelings and, and the, the words that were, that were said. Um, so those things happen over time, and, and I think that's, it's human nature that- what, what did you learn from that? I think that I should have been more in tune with what my people were thinking and feeling um, and delved in a little bit deeper when I talked with them individually and asked, you know, how are you, how are you doing? We had a meeting. I met with everyone one-on-one -on -one in, in December of that year or something and say, you know, what do you, what do you want from, what are you getting from improv? What do you want? How can I help you? How can we do things better? Um, and people said, fine, that's good, it's no problem. And then just a few months later, there were big problems. And so I, I think I wasn't attuned to what all my people were feeling. And so I think I had to do, I should do a better job of making sure that, that I'm approachable and people can say what's bothering them. You, the other issue that you guys deal with, and, and, and I see this in smaller markets, is people, people join your theater, they get a lot of stage time, they get a lot of experience, and then they, they, they want to go to a bigger market. They want to go to Chicago or Los Angeles. How does that affect you? Um, it, it affects us negatively. Um, How do you handle it personally? At first it was a little bit hard, but you can't blame anyone. And I've now realized that when, you know, the people who move away to Chicago or LA are typically people who are pretty talented and, and good at it, right? And so you feel like, oh, we just lost all this talent. We're not going to be as good. And I've, I've realized when that happens, other people step up. Other people improve. Other people see that kind of vacuum and see that opportunity. And so we've lost so many really super talented people. And then, um, you know, once people are in our group for a year, some of them are, are amazing. And our group is just as strong as it was before we lost that talent. And it took me a while to figure out that, oh, we're going to be okay, that we're, there's a, there's a lot of talent. Do you ever say, because I've, you know, in Chicago, I've seen people go, LA, New York, stuff like that. Sure. And I always go, when is my turn? When is my turn to get the move? Do you ever think that? Like, um, no, because I could do that at any time. That's up to me. I heard someone, we had Dave Rosowski in the teaching intensive a couple years ago. And there was an improviser thinking, you know, I've kind of been thinking about maybe moving to LA. And Dave said, flights leave every day, period. Like, okay, then move. Like, stop talking about maybe. Like, go, do it. And so, I mean, there are some of us who have made the decision that we're going to, you know, our home is Kansas City. We're going to do, we're going to build this in Kansas City. Um, and there are other people who have to chart their own course. And, you know, we have a lot of talented people in their young 20s, and I, you know, I'm happy for them when they find success in other places, and I'm not, I'm proud, and I'm not surprised. 
Now the other issue you have there, and, and I've seen this in smaller markets too, you start something and then there's splinter groups. Yeah. How do you feel about those? Um, those are more, those bother me a little bit more. And not, that, not that they don't have the right to do whatever they want to, they mm -hmm. do. Um, the first time it happened, we brought in kind of our first round of auditions after we had that core five. And uh, we brought in a couple people and we, we got pretty good together. And then uh, two of those people who we trained up from, from almost from the beginning, decided to leave and start their own kind of alternative sketch, improv, comedy thing. And so, I, you know, I'm sorry to see you go, you know, come back, maybe come back sometime. And then they invite our two other best people to join them. And so that, that bothered me because it kind of threatened the existence of my, of my group. Um, but we survived that and... Um, How did you handle that? Did those guys just go away and start their own thing? No, they started doing both. Okay. Both things. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, we have a good enough organization. We put, off, put, in, put on good shows, and we produce shows pretty well so that people are going to be attracted, and they're going to want to stay with us. Um, and they can, all of my people, I encourage them to do other things and other projects and side projects. And like I said, a lot of our people now are, are accomplished actors who will go do the Shakespeare Festival for three months, so they're out of pocket. Or we have one person now who's touring South America with an acting group, and that's great. And I want him to come back when he's back, and I want to have that talent in my group. Um, so people can do lots of other And it's projects. okay if I'm in your group and we decide we're, you know, on Sunday nights we're going to do something at a bar, and is, is that okay? That's okay. Um, it makes me feel like, well, what, what can I do so that you don't, so that you can get everything from performing and improv that you want with my theater? Because if you go do something else, Elsewhere, it's because I'm not, you're not getting what you need from my organization. And for some people, it's just they feel like they need to direct their own thing, um, and that's okay. Um, and those, those things tend not to last very long, in my experience. Um, uh, there is one, another group that, that split off from us that's still doing regular shows, and I wish them well. Like in Kansas City, it doesn't bother me when other improv groups are doing shows around town. Um, it bothers me when other improv groups are doing shows around town that suck. I don't want people, because it's happened to lots of potential audience members, they go to one improv show, and if they go to the you know, five 18-year-old people who are just effing around on stage and don't know what they're doing, they decide, oh, improv's not for me. And no one does that when they see a bad movie, no one does that when they see a bad play. They're like, oh, turns out I don't like plays. But for improv, because, because it's not so prevalent, I think, uh, people go and say, oh, improv, I don't know what this is going to be like at all. Let me get my impression of improv. And if it's a bad show, then they're like, oh, not going to go to an improv show anymore. So I would rather have, I'm, I'm glad that there are other shows around Kansas City that are good, that I know that are high quality. Um, you also talked about how important it is to be likable on stage. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Can that's, you explain that? Sure. Um, I think that's something that I, I learned from reading about Second City shows. You know, at the, at the opening of the, of the show, I want the audience to like us on stage, like the performers, before they see what we can do in character. Um, 
so I think that's... And how do you achieve that? Because people say that. It's like it's very important to be likable. But how do you teach somebody that? Or, or how, what is your process about being likable? What's your strategy? I think it's largely a matter of the style of hosting the show, of addressing the audience, welcoming them, and, and speaking to... You know, I, my philosophy is that we put on improv shows for the audience, not just for the performers' fun, and I think that's important to remember. And you're, what you want to do is impress the people who are at an improv show for the first time, not not the people who come every week because they love you already, but make it welcoming, so that you can grow your audience. So, is there something that go when you say likable? Is there something? Is is there is something that goes on in a message that goes in your your brain? Or uh, is it more energy? Is it a smile? What is it? What is that thing to be likable? I think the key might be to be, is the empathy that you have for the audience to, to be able to put yourself in their position. We have a lot of people who come into our theater and they go right to the back row or the back section and sit down because they're afraid. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if it's going to be like a stand-up show where the comedian makes fun of the people in the front row and talks about their shirt or whatever and and has and the comedy is at the expense of, of someone else um, because improv should not be that way in my opinion um, so, so it's, take it's, a look at our audience now and how would you approach this? nice if shirt you... <laughs> okay how would you <laughs> if that's likable I've been doing it my whole life um, I don't need any work on this how would you approach this? Um, well, you, when you greet people, it's, it's, it's smile, and it's eye contact, it's openness, it's the physicality, it's, um, you know, thank you for coming, I hope that, um, that you're having a good time, I hope that you're comfortable, that, that type of energy, not that you're going to say all of those words, but um, that's the attitude, so that they're comfortable and relaxed in, in their seats, and they, they're, yeah. they, and they know that you're professional and they're that okay this is going to be good this is not just people now that works for you if you're hosting it but right so, so you come out and you host it and you're likable now you're bringing eight people on stage are they thinking they've got to be likable too or or have you given them their permission not to be likable or do what they want because you're likable I, I think if I think the latter I think if the audience is comfortable and I like to host and have the the cast standing behind me as themselves so that the audience can kind of get a look at everyone as a human being before they see them as a person. Because if they're standing there like a normal human being and kind of being pleasant and smiling, then in the first scene if they have to play the evil stepmother or the bully from the grade school, then people know, oh, that's not, that guy's not a dick. He's a nice guy, but now he's playing a dick really well. So I think that there's a little bit of that to it. All right, so we're going to improvise now. All right. All right. Um, so, uh, we're going to do a scene, okay. Um, what would you like for a suggestion? What do you like to take? Um, I always like to take either a location or a type of relationship. Okay, why do you like to take a location or relationship? Because I think those are the two most important things that the scene partners need to get on the same page with. If you get a, a suggestion like pineapple or a thing or a food, <laughs> then... Now you rolled your eyes a thing and a food. You, why don't you like those? Because those lead to some of the most terrible improv scenes and sets. 
Did someone do that last night or something? Yeah. <laughs> what did somebody That's, do? Well, I've been there. Do? I've been there. That's why I was in my brain. You got pineapple, and what did you? Uh, what happened? Uh, <laughs> I see. Well, no, it's it tough. Actually, it was very good. It was just blue, um, and there there were a lot of relationships that came out of it. But the main theme uh, was how pineapples change certain bodily fluids. And it's beautiful relationships. Are you you're saying like you get pineapple and then you see three scenes about people well, eating pineapple and talking about eating pineapple? More than that, it just makes it very difficult because if we get the suggestion of of kumquat just to change it up a little bit, we we start a scene, we have no idea where we are, uh -huh. we have no idea who we are to each other, and we have to figure that out. I don't like that first ten to 30 to 45 seconds of an improv scene to have that uncertainty. Because that, that period of the improv scene usually sucks and is low energy. Okay, so we're gonna take a location and we're going to take, uh, we're, take we're, we're taking one of them, right? Okay. Okay, or did you wanna take both of them? Do you usually do both of them? I usually do one. Okay, great. Can we either have a location or a relationship? Baseball dugout. Cellmates and baseball dugout. Which one do you wanna take? Uh, let's do baseball dugout because okay. some So now you have baseball dugout. What's going on in your mind? Uh, I visualize it. Um, and I try to think of what kind of relationship would fit that pretty well. Right. Um, and I'll probably try, I, I immediately want to have a feeling or an emotion inside. What's the feeling? Oh, that I'm getting? Uh, macho, probably. Okay. Okay. So then I can start with a macho character, and no matter what is said to me, I can make that macho character work. Even if he calls me Helen, okay, I'm Helen. I'm a girl, but I'm gonna be macho. I, as opposed to getting in your head, oh, I'm gonna be a coach who doesn't know baseball very well, but he's coaching his daughter, and he's giving her preferential treatment, and then we start, and he calls me, hey, little Bobby, now all my ideas are worthless, and now I'm, I'm kicking myself, and my mental energy is wasted, and now I have nothing that I can use, right? Okay. okay. <laughs> I've got nothing, completely okay. nothing. Okay, I've been teaching workshop for four hours. Right. What would, what would you suggest I do? Um, make eye contact with me, mm -hmm. get some kind of feeling, Okay. and whatever that feeling is, embrace it, make sure that it's a strong feeling. Don't be a little bit Fill in the blank. Don't be a little bit angry. Don't be a little bit in love. Don't be a little bit sad. Like embrace it and make sure that's going to be the core of what you start with. Okay, let's go. Okay. There you are. There you are. Yeah. Hey, that was great. Yeah. That was a great hit. Thanks. Yeah. That was really nice. I was there. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, I, I, know. I, I just, I just, you know what? I, I just, you know. I don't usually talk to rookies. I know, I know, I know, I know. It was, it was you great. special? I'm sorry. Am I special? The question was, you special? No, am I, am I special? Well, I, I got a split finger fastball that that goes like this and that. It's it's amazing. <laughs> Pitched yet? No, I haven't. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not pitching till Thursday. Right. If you make it that long.
Well, I, people I, get I, cut every day. People yeah. get cut. Uh, Willie Randolph. Yeah, who played for the Mets? Yeah. Right. Yeah. First time up in the bigs, he got cut because he spit seeds out wrong. Well, I, you I, can get cut for any reason, at yeah. any time. Cool. Yeah. Well, I don't spit seeds. <laughs> yeah. I saw no, your you, car out there. Yeah. You like it? Yeah. They they gave it to me as a signing. You know when they they brought me up. Jesus. What? 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 I treat you pitchers like you're a royalty. You haven't done shit. Well, not yet. Until Thursday, I'm gonna go in. <laughs> you know what? Used to be, you earned something, then they gave it to you. What are you, 19? Uh, just turned 19, yeah. You were my favorite player. <laughs> yeah. When I was a kid, I, I was like, someday, I'm gonna play for the Royals. And look, I'm playing for the Royals. Yeah. Good idea, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I always wonder? Like, like, you know, you're in a slump now. It's like, um, <laughs> how do you get out of a slump? You know, it's got to be psychological. I mean, you were hitting 375 for, for your whole career in the last two years. I mean, you're barely hitting 200. I'm not saying what you hit was lucky, but... Are you special? And this team, this time I mean, are you mentally retarded? Um, uh, uh, no. <laughs> I had to think about that for a second, because I didn't yeah. understand what you said. But you got balls. Thank you. <laughs> I punch people for looking at me the right way. <laughs> you know that about me, right, Amherst? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you get in a fight all the time. I mean, you're looking for a fight. So you thought it was a good idea? Yeah, well. To bring up this little slump? Well, I'm just asking. Just asking. If I knew how to get out of a slump, yeah. don't you think I would be out of the slump? Yeah, I just, you know, sometimes when I'm in a slump, it's because, like, I'm not getting laid. Did she tell you? She didn't, but everyone's talking about it in the locker room. It's not that I can't get laid. No. You know who I am. Yeah. Says so you have performance anxiety. It's a physical, <laughs> physical, psychological problem, and it's a legitimate medical thing. Yeah. And when you're hitting over 300, you have no problem. But anything under 300, and then you have performance anxiety. That's what the trainer Kip told me. <laughs> you really a baseball pitcher? Yeah. You're getting in my head. <laughs> That's what we do. A lot of people. You psyching me out? I could be. <laughs> <laughs> fucking rain. Okay, yeah. I've got performance anxiety. It bothers me. I didn't used to have this problem. Now, pretty soon, I'm not going to be playing. I'm not going to be. 
magazine covers. Maybe if you were nicer, the people on your team, maybe people look up to you. Yeah. But they also think you're a jerk. <laughs> Good point. But I've always been a jerk. Works for me. It's who I am. Yeah. Is it? Is it really working? It's what I do. It's You're what... hitting 219. <laughs> There's a lot of people on this team, like myself, that could use some mentoring, some help. Yeah. If I help you, if I mentor you, teach you what it's like to be a pro, will you get it hard for me? <laughs> I, I didn't understand that. <laughs> Will I get a what? Will you get it hard for me? Look down here. Don't look I know. I now, I now understand what you were saying. <laughs> I, I can help you get there. I, I, I had that problem too. Yeah. When I was in sixth grade. That's <laughs> when I lost my virginity. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. On purpose? Yeah. Wow. She was 18 years old. No shit. I'm, I'm pretty good with the chicks. <laughs> I'm a baseball player. I was throwing 90 miles an hour when I was in the sixth grade. Wow. Yeah. It's all mental. Okay. Let me try something. You're, tr you're trying too hard. Putting your your fingers on your temple. You, you, it's how you think, right? No, it's not how you think. You think with your heart. That's your problem. I'm not a great pitcher, all right? I throw 90 miles an hour. There's a lot of guys who throw 90 miles an hour. Yeah. But I'm a junk ball pitcher. I do it with here, my brain, my heart. Yeah. That's what you've forgotten. You outthink them. You do things they're not expecting. Exactly. So I gotta surprise it. <laughs> gotta outthink it. Gotta do stuff to it. It hasn't even imagined. <laughs> yeah. Do you love her? Three out of the four. <laughs> You've been going out with her for, for eight years now. That Meredith, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jasmine, uh, Carolyn, love them. And then there's Kim. <laughs> That's your problem. How old are you, 40, 42? 37. Well, you look 40, 42. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta make a commitment. Commitment? Yeah. Why, 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 you, you got four girls, why didn't you marry one? <laughs> that didn't, you don't have the others probably. You don't buy four cows if you get free milk, whatever the thing is. <laughs> That's, but you pick one. Yeah. Look, how many teams have you been on? Six. Sixteen. Yeah. Where have you been the most happiest? Boston. Why Boston? It's hitting 378. Women love me. Media love me. 
signing baseballs for kids. Now I'm in Kansas City. Shazam! I'll tell you why you love Boston. Why? Because you felt like you belonged. Yeah. And the love that those kids gave you, that's what you liked. Why'd you get into baseball? I was good at it, you know? Do what you're good at. It's just... You never loved it? Huh? Yeah, there are moments. You know, crack the ball, get right in a sweet spot, and you know, did it just right. What about after a game? Some kid playing Little League wants your autograph. They've come four or five hours in a car just to see you. They gotta drive four or five hours back. Yeah, makes me feel good. So remember that when you try to get hard. <laughs> <laughs> What was fun about it? Uh, I, I typically enjoy playing big, somewhat dumb characters. Mm -hmm. um, people who think they deserve a lot of respect who probably don't. Right. Uh, that's, that's, that's really fun. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, and it was fun. I liked the relationship and that it, it, I had all the power at first. Right. And then that changed and that evolved. Status shift. Yep. Which, was, which is always fun. It keeps it... Um, what do you think we could, is there anything that you wanted to do differently or any place we wanted to go? Yeah, that went, um, blue and sexual and I don't, not particularly proud. Where did you go proud. blue and sexual? I was talking about, I was grabbing my penis during that set. Joke. Okay, all right. <laughs> it was somewhere in there. Well, you were yeah. facing the audience. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, yeah, um, I don't remember where it, I don't remember exactly where it started right now. Uh-huh. Um, I don't... <laughs> After shows, a lot of times people will come up to me, I love when you said blah, 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 and I'll have no recollection of it. Um, so uh, so it you kind of black with, out after the show kind of thing? Or, or not black out, but you know what I'm saying? You, you I don't have a good memory of the show after the show. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so after the show, do people say, oh, you did this and we could have done this better and giving no? So when they're saying... We rarely talk after the shows and dissect shows. Okay. Yeah. So this is kind of new for you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is part of the part of the podcast that I uh, was kind of least comfortable about. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. And what makes you uncomfortable about it? Oh, because I've I've rarely done it. I've never really sat down and dissected, you know, what went right and what went wrong in that thing we just did. Okay. So should we turn it over to the audience and see what they? Whatever you think, I'm happy to, to talk about it. Okay. But I'm surprised. I don't remember. The audience probably remembers when it went from when it got sexual. Um, I said something like, "Oh, she told you." Right. We're talking about bad baseball performance, and that right. led and to I bad sexual. Right. I said something like sexual performance or something. Performance anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, I, and then you. Oh, you said maybe you're not getting laid. Right. 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 Okay. Okay. And then... Do, and, and I think we, we grabbed onto that because that was a chance to do a status shift. Right. And show this character, my character's vulnerability uh -huh. and weakness, which it's fun to do. He's all macho and all powerful and right. famous and rich. You want to see why, what are the weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
so if I asked you the question of things we could have done better, so you didn't want to go into that area. You, you would have liked to not... Ex I think it went there organically and kind of for the right reasons. Okay, so let's just, let's just play that part out and see if we can take it in a different direction. Oh, okay. Do you guys remember where we... Where we where you, said, you said that you sometimes get into a slump when you're not getting laid. Great, let's oh, do yeah, that and yeah. see if we... I'll say that okay. line and see if we can... We were over here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes... What was that? Yeah. Great, okay, thank you. Uh, sometimes uh, when I'm... Uh, Let me go back just a little bit. Do you think if I knew how to get out of a slump, I'd be out of a slump? Yeah, well, sometimes when I'm in a slump, it's because I'm not getting laid. You think I'm not getting... 35 minutes ago, I got laid. Okay. And maybe that's why you got a double. <laughs> I have to have more sex? I'm 38 years old, I can't do that. It's not about the sex. I don't have sex just for sex. I have it because I'm in love. Oh. My girlfriend, Caroline? Yeah? She followed me all the way here from Peoria because <laughs> she loves me. That's good. You got, you got four women. Yeah. I'd imagine one of them loves you. They all say this, so. Do you love them? <laughs> you I, have to think. I like having sex with them. That's not the same thing. No, I guess not. I'm my own man. I don't need that. I just need baseball. You're hitting 219. <laughs> this could be your last season. And that would be up to me. Look, I'm just a rookie, but you want a tip? What? Why don't you propose to one of them? Proposed marriage? Yeah. I'd probably lose the other three. <laughs> but you're getting plenty of milk. You don't need four cows. It's true. You think I'll hit better? Well, all I know is ever since I married Caroline, uh, things have worked out pretty well for me. Okay, rookie. My name's Jeff. I don't care. <laughs> Some teams, rookies have to go and bring donuts to the veterans. Caroline is my donut. <laughs> my Caroline? My Caroline. <laughs> Welcome to the big leagues. Thanks. Great. All right. <laughs> so, how do you like how do you like going that way? Uh, that was less explicit, and I liked it because now I get to have sex with your girlfriend. Okay. So it still went sexual, but it was less. Um, it was less about sex and more about the feelings of the characters. I think. Okay. And we got to explore more of the relationship with the characters and make more discoveries about the characters. I thought. Um, yeah, it, it seemed the, more human too, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. You know? And then the comedy is coming from relationships, and it's not coming from like the surprise factor of oh my gosh, they're talking about that. Right. Which is kind of a cheap way to get laughs and get reactions right. and get people uncomfortable. Because I base that off my life with sex, because I love talking about sex on the podcast. But like, for me, like, if things are going well in my life, yeah. sex is very easy. 
And then when things aren't going well in my life, sex is just like, it's, it's very hard to have sex. And so I was trying to use, I was trying to bring that into this scene, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. You know, with you. And maybe the love thing was hitting it over the head too much, but I was trying to, that's where I was trying to go. Yeah. I'd rather hit something over the head with love as opposed to hit something over the head with... Pineapple. Sex, penis, yeah. pineapple. I, almost, I was really tempted to grab some pineapple juice in that first scene. I'm, were you serious? Yeah, yeah. It's like we're a talking joke about, to what they were saying? Yeah, as a callback to... Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to take some questions. Uh, Great. Um, and, and for people that are listening, what did we do differently in that, that scene that, that the second time we did it, do you think that, that, made, it, that made it work? Um, I think we were more connected, maybe, and uh, maybe I wasn't as as distracted and thinking about, oh, is this too blue? Oh, is that what was going on in your head? A little bit. I mean, that's a quiet voice, but it was there. Is it because of your fam- uh, family-friendly upbringing in improv, or just no, no? Do you guys go these kind of subject matters in Kansas City, or yeah, our shows are all R-rated. Okay, for the most part. Okay, or adults only. Okay. Great. So we're going to take some questions from the audience uh, for Tim. So if you got a question, uh, just put your hand up. Oh, thanks, James, for getting the lights up. Uh, so uh, uh, here's your opportunity. Right over here. Yes. Um, uh, me and other girls changed uh, uh, eyes when you basically traded off a girl because you weren't blue anymore, but you were misogynistic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which I kind of found offensive when that went there. I would, Hopefully, I told you this was an ongoing scene. Like, the girl could be like, well, fuck you both. Yes. I'm not something to be traded off. I would agree with you. Um, so I was playing okay. a stupid, overly macho character. Right. And, right. And, right. and I was also being, I was being an asshole the whole time. Yes. So when a women's issue comes up, it would be out of character for me right. to oh, be right. a gentleman. So, so then I was so, he agreed to it because he's supposed to be the nice <laughs> Right, I, and that probably happened for the sake of like, there's some closure. This is a place to end the scene. So um, I hope that you don't think that no, I don't think I'm misogynistic. misogynistic right. I'm saying, like, if you're worried about blue, that's another thing. It's not just blue. Misogyny is not family friendly. Either. Right. Oh, I agree. Oh, this was not family friendly. No, but I'm saying that you don't like to go to blue because it's not family friendly. I would rather see. No, I agree. I mean, that concept of bartering for a woman is a, an offensive concept, right. but it doesn't mean that it's off-limits to explore right. in comedy. If right. this went on, I would be the villain. Mm-hmm. I would never succeed in what I wanted. Right. Um, Caroline would probably be um, more impressive than either of us, um, <laughs> and a better person, um, uh, but it didn't go on, so I right. understand the... Right. Yeah, and thank you for like, making the point. You know, it's interesting uh, for me because the whole Caroline thing, I was, I, I think I got confused, and so I just agreed, which probably uh, is not a, a, a great move. Because <laughs> uh, when you said Caroline, then my Caroline, then when you said that, then, then, it, then it registered. Because I had forgotten the names of... Because I had listed four names yes, in the pre- previous scene, right. uh-huh. and Caroline was one of them, and I don't remember if that's part of the scene that we erased and went back to. I thought it was, but... Right, so, so I was, was confused, and that's why I, I did that, which, thank you for helping me get clear. Uh, yes, right here. I just, I think it would be fair, like, in this situation, I, I feel like the defense, if this had gone on, it wouldn't have been offensive. It's potentially invalid when it was one of 
the scene was clearly coming to a close, um, initiating a blatantly misogynistic exchange of sex without consent um, isn't something where you can say, if this went on, it wouldn't be offensive because it wasn't going to go on. This was the point of closure. Um, and I would also argue that misogyny is 100% always more offensive than blue humor. And I, just, I just think that's a fair, like, I just want to say, like, I think that's a say, fair. Like, my character is an idiot. This is how we would respond to an issue of women's issues. That's not necessarily valid if you initiate a women's issue. Well, that's a valid point. Sorry, it's just, I, I had the exact same reaction of, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I would make a, a larger meta point, which is maybe getting off a specific topic, but why the second scene was truer to the character is that you were playing an inherently flawed character making flawed choices. So for him to be magically redeemed at the end uh, is a storybook thing that we're used to maybe in movies, but isn't really how life plays out. So taking aside the issue of misogyny and that specific choice, the reason why it may have felt truer is that he was a flawed guy and there was nothing about the decisions he made up to that point which would suggest at the end he would be happier to find the magic ending out of it. And Jimmy was providing a very innocent foil bounds against, but you were leaning into the character's instinct, which is to keep making wrong decisions, and that was just one more wrong decision in the chain. Good point. Right over here. Um, I appreciated the vulnerability in the first scene, and I feel like uh, kind of getting away from that in the second scene led to more of a more of a misdirected gamey type of scene, and both are valid, but I appreciated the first one a little bit better. Great. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, right over here. Still formulating my question. Um, so at the very beginning of this uh, podcast, you start uh, talking about offense, um, mostly in employment law. Yeah. Um, and you brought up the thing um, where you basically have to choose to, to do a lawsuit. And if no one, if everyone's comfortable with it, uh, then, then it's not a problem at the time. Um, but in the improv community, at least in mine and others I've known, there have been people who've been offended when when um, in order to make fun of the devil, the devil has to be on stage. And right. when the devil's on stage for so long, um, especially if you have a, a single minority in the group, like a single woman or a single Af African American, and the bringing out the misogyny becomes so heavy that that's where uh, the offense really comes in. And uh, my specific question is, ha have you had experience uh, in your community of this happening, and how did you uh, resolve it? That's a really good question. Uh, we haven't had a large problem with that. You, I, I've seen it in you know given scenes um, and given shows, probably, or sets. Uh, but you have to have, you have to realize you know, it's that empathy. You have to realize when people are uncomfortable, and and when you've gone too far, or when you're going to go too far. So, how do you feel about their reaction about that? How how do you take how do you take that reaction? How, how are you feeling right now about what they said, uh, the misogynistic stuff? Um, I think they made really good points, and they're right that I you know that I initiated that issue or that. Um, little exchange. Um, 
I'm unhappy that I offended people, but I also uh, can't let that bother me excessively. Um, um, so that's how I feel. Um, Do you feel um, like when I started out, like offending people, that I, I did not want to do that at right, all. Right. So is there a benefit that they got triggered, they, they, they feel an emotional reaction to, to what we did? Oh, I mean, if there were no emotional reaction to what we did, then we would have failed miserably, horribly. That's not the emotion that I want to elicit ever, is offense. Um, but I like that improv and theater can address issues that are hard to talk about and that are hard to deal with and that you can have characters that are assholes and doing terrible things and then you have other people who deal with those consequences and deal with them in kind of a real way, usually. Um, and so, you know, George Carlin has, has a brilliant, there are interviews of George Carlin where he talks about humor and, and, and he knows so much more about humor than I ever will or knew so much more. Um, and he talks about, you know, there, there's no issue that should be off limits for comedy that, that you can't, there's no issue that you can't make funny. You can make any issue funny. Um, and I'm a big believer in that. And you, just like you're gonna fail sometimes at improv, you're gonna have some bad scenes, you're gonna have some bad moments. You know, there might be times where you slip up and offend people. Um, hopefully they're extremely rare, and hopefully the audience knows that it didn't come from a malicious or hateful place in any way. Um, so I, I think that's, those are my feelings. Great, we got another question here. Do you think that those times when you do slip up and offend people are points where you should learn from it and incorporate it rather than letting it roll off of your back? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Right here? Um, seems like a lot of, of what would make a scene like that play is context. And if you had edited, obviously we're doing a two-person scene, it was a real improv set, you would have improvised uh, another character, another scene that would have put that character into context, and or brought that scene, another character tagged off and played the scene with 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 uh, that Fair character. Right. I mean, you, know, you confronted, you built tension up to the end of that scene, and you heightened it right at the end, and it got a laugh, but it was set up something else. It, some, it could have set up five or six more scenes after that. Context for that scene that would have made it. Uh, would have ameliorated any offense that would have come from, in my opinion. Yeah, or, or Jimmy could have thrown a 90 mile per hour fastball at his, at his penis and, and ended it showing he couldn't be redeemed. I mean, there are other choices. To, to right, and I think that it, I think that if we were doing a scene about actual sex trafficking, that I would have been much more careful, but it was kind of a ridiculous situation to expect that really a human being was gonna be handed off between baseball players. Um, and so I felt that it's a safer place um, to take risks. And I offended people and I apologize for that. But um, I would, you know, the context matters. And um, uh, I thought it was such a ridiculous thing for this stupid, oafish character to say that um, that it wouldn't be taken 
uh, overly seriously and, and, and as offensive, um, but people did, so I made a mistake. Yes? Um, different topic. Um, you said you, when you don't remember, like when you do improv, you get off stage, people are like, hey, do you remember when you did this? I'm the same way. In fact, I go to the point, I can't, like, if someone records the show, I can't stand to watch it. It's just like, it's like, what? I don't even know who that is. Do you ever feel like that too, or? Um, uh, yes. Yes, I do. Um, and I don't watch most of my shows after afterward. Um, but when I do, it's usually, uh, it's usually months afterward, and I, I don't remember. I'll remember bits and pieces, and they'll come back to me when I watch them. But, yeah. I, I just there, there's something. I studied with Del Close years ago, and he he was a big. And it took me years to 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 embrace this. But he used to say, a groan is as good as a laugh. Meaning, if you offend the audience, character offends the audience. In a way, that's as good as a laugh. What do you feel about that? I, I say I really like, at least if we do a 30-minute set or an hour show, at least once I want to hear the audience make noise besides laughter, whether it's like awe um, of sympathy or a gasp of surprise. I, I really like that because then they're, you know, that they're involved and they're feeling emotions. They're not just sitting and, and laughing about simple kind of surface-level comedic stuff. And if you're going to play a character that's misogynistic, let's say, maybe they're racist, maybe they're, you know, whatever, they, they're extreme, what's, what's, what's the best way to do that? Uh, you have to be clear that, that's, that, that you're lampooning that character, that point of view, mm -hmm. and then you're making fun of the racist, the misogynistic character, whatever. Because those things are... They're relatable because they're real. They really happen. There are there is sexism and racism out in the world, and also because it doesn't make any logical sense to treat people differently based on those reasons. And so there's that inherent tension, and there's that inherent contrast that you can relate to it. Um, but it's it's stupid, and so it's a target for satire and comedy. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, any more questions? Awesome. This has been great. Tim Marks, thank you so much for being our guest. We really appreciate it. Uh, give, us, give Tim a nice round of applause. There you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. The Tim Marks episode. And I wasn't lying, was I? That was a pretty heated conversation about character. Uh, and uh, I think we all learned something from it. Uh, I know I did. I learned that I am still codependent. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Tim Marks, and especially I want to thank Improv Festival Oklahoma and the great host of James Murray for bringing us down there. Thank you, James. What a hell of a, of a festival they have down there. It was just so much fun. Um, also, I want to thank Kenny Madison. Kenny uh, recorded the uh, episode when we were down in Oklahoma City, and uh, so I want to thank him. I'd also like to thank our producer here in Chicago, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes it sound so slick and so professional. You wouldn't be hearing my voice right now if it wasn't for Dan Schiffmacher. And if you want to know more about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning classes, The Artist Low Comedy, and my improv blog, which will make you a better improviser and a better person, well, the second thing, it will be up to you. 
go to jimmycarain.com and sign up. Every week I will send you a new blog that talks about the things that people are afraid to talk about in improv, like judging other people on stage, like how do you feel after you've done a bad show, that kind of stuff. Uh, so go to my website. That's all you have to do. It's that simple and sign up. Uh, also, I want to just do a shout-out to uh, Feral Audio. We are part of the wonderful, growing podcast collective called Feral Audio. Uh, so if you want to hear some of the funniest, most innovative and original podcasting right now in the country, probably in the world, go to feralaudio.com. We are also taking over social media. First, we started with the Improv Nerd Facebook fan page. So go to that and like us because it really helps with my low self-esteem. Then go over to Twitter and follow us at Improv underscore Nerd. Then it's over to our YouTube channel where we have clips from past episodes. And if you think listening to Improv Nerd is educational, wait till you see the videos. I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Hotel Lincoln. And more importantly, I'd like to thank you for listening, because without you, this would just be a sad 50-year-old man talking into a microphone in his basement. Until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island. Yeah. And he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 